The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, a five-year-old girl was walking through a cemetery with her father. While they were walking, they saw a man pushing a stick into the ground by one of the tombstones and then placing a wreath and some flowers on that stick. And the little girl said to her dad, Dad, what's that man doing? And the father said, well, he's putting that stick in the ground so we can hang some flowers from that. And she said, why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that as a remembrance for someone who died there. And she said, oh, she said, Dad, do you think someone will do that for me after I die? And the father said, sure, dear, I I I see no reason why not. Of course someone will do that for you. And then the little girl thought for a moment, and then she said, well, actually, that's pretty stupid. And the dad said, why? She said, well, what good is it going to do me? All I'm going to see is the bottom of the stick. Clearly, that little girl had a confused concept regarding what happens after we die. And it's been my experience over the years that this little girl is not alone in her confusion. We're presently in the middle of a series here at Broadway we're calling Life's Big Questions. It's a series where we're doing our best to provide biblical answers to four of life's biggest questions. So far, we've addressed the question of origins. Where do we come from? Last week, we addressed the question of uh, identity. Who am I? And today, we're addressing the big question of destiny. Where am I going? Where does life ultimately lead? Now, when we ask, where does life ultimately lead, we're talking about more than our career destiny or our retirement destiny or our financial destiny. When we ask, where does life ultimately lead, we're talking about our eternal destiny. So today we're seeking to answer the big question, what lies ahead of us beyond the grave? What's waiting for us after we die? Now as a pastor, I've been pastoring for decades now, for 30, 40 years, and, well, 30 years, 32, 35 years, I think is the actual number, something like that. Anyway, for decades. And I've stood by more than my share of caskets in my lifetime. I've stood by more than my share of graves. And without a doubt, the most difficult moments in a funeral are the closing of that casket for the last time and the lowering of that casket into the ground. It's not just the finality of those moments, it's also the confusion that rises up in our minds at those moments. Think about it. Every time you have experienced or interacted with me, you've done it through this body. You've seen this face, you've heard this voice, and you associate Darren Latham with this body. Every person you've ever interacted with and presently interact with, you associate that person with the body that they're dwelling in right now. And so when you're standing at a casket or you're having the lid closed or that body is being lowered into the ground and soil is being tossed upon it, there's something inside of you that says, no, no, you can't do that to my loved one. How can they function inside that casket? Our minds fight back. Our minds resist because we have always associated that person with that body. It's been my experience that our minds need a strong dose of reality at those moments. A strong dose of reality concerning the ultimate destiny of a human life. 
And I'm convinced that we'll better understand our ultimate destiny if we better understand our ultimate nature. Meaning, what is the ultimate nature of a human? What are we made up of as human beings? What are the essential ingredients of a human life? Now, you and I live in a world and in a culture that is growing increasingly materialistic in its thinking. Now, now when I say materialistic, I'm not talking about loving money. I'm referring to the worldview that declares that the physical material realm is all that there is. This view holds that you are nothing more than a bag of chemicals charged with electrical impulses. That's it. That's you. That's the materialistic view, but that's not the biblical view. According to the biblical view, you are more than just your body. According to the biblical view, you are more than matter and energy. The truth is declared, this truth is declared, in the very first words spoken about the very first humans in the very first book of the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 1. You can read it on the side screens if you'd like. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man, meaning mankind, in our own image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now notice this, that's the physical realm, the physical, physical aspect of our being, of our nature. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and look at this, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and look at that last phrase, and the man became a living being. Now do you see that word being? This was originally written in Hebrew, and the original Hebrew word for being is nephesh. It's the Hebrew word for soul. So it literally says, the man became a living being, or the man became a living soul. What is a soul? A year or two ago, we did a whole four-week series on, or three or four, five-week series on a soul. We called it SOS, and we dug into the nature of the human soul. And we learned that a soul, or spirit, which is just another way of saying the same thing, soul, spirit, is a non-physical entity. The Bible says that God is spirit, or literally God is a soul. So what exactly is a soul? As your outline says, a soul is a mind, a non-physical center of consciousness. A soul is a mind, a non-physical center of consciousness, center of self-awareness, will, volition, emotions. A soul is a mind, not a brain, a mind. A brain is a physical thing. A soul is a mind, a non-physical center of consciousness. You see, a human being is a soul, a non-physical center of consciousness that uses a brain while in a body. So a human being is a soul that lives in a body. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' early leaders, used the analogy of a tent. Look how Paul described our bodies and soul interaction. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, he's talking about death there, if the earthly tent, this body that I'm living in, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, 
not built by human hands. See what he's saying here. He's saying, listen, you are a non-physical soul that is dwelling in a physical tent. Now think about when you're in a tent, you know, you, you, you zip open the tent and you step inside of the tent. You are a being inside the tent. And you can be in the tent, you can be out of the tent. Now I'm back in the tent, now I'm out of the tent. You realize you're a being that is dwelling in a tent. And the Apostle Paul said, you know, your body is like a tent. And you are the being that is dwelling inside of that tent. And there will come a day when your tent will be dismantled. It'll be packed up. It'll be put away. You will still exist. But the tent, which is your earthly body, will be destroyed. Now understand this. A tent doesn't use a person. A person uses a tent. A car doesn't use a driver. A driver uses a car. And that brings us to our big idea. You are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that has a body. Do you see the difference? At your core, you are not a body that happens to have a soul. No, you are a soul that has a body. When I'm standing with folks by the casket or by that grave at that crucial moment, and I sense that they're struggling, I'll often walk up beside them, sometimes put my arm around them and say, just whisper into their ear, remember this truth. I am a soul. I live in a body. Say it with me. I would say to them, I am a soul. I live in a body. So when you see your loved one in that casket, that's not them. That's the tent that they dwelt in. But they're no longer in that tent. Listen, in our garage at home right now, if you walked into our garage, you would see some tents hanging on the wall, on hooks on the wall. Tents that my family, that I have used over the years. I've been in those tents. But now those tents have been folded up and they're hanging on that wall. When you drive by a cemetery, you know what you're driving by? You're driving by a bunch of tents that have been folded up and buried in the ground. You are a soul. You live in a body. And that body is like an earthly tent that someday will be dismantled and buried but you will live on. See, you are more than your flesh and blood. You are made in God's image, and God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. God is a soul. And that means at your core, you are a non-material being. You are a spirit. You are a soul. Now, don't misunderstand me. This isn't some form of Gnosticism that I'm teaching. While you are on this earth, your mind, your spirit, your soul is connected to your physical body. Yes, it is one. And your ultimate destiny is to live forever in a new eternal body. But there are some things that are going to happen to you, some events that you are destined to experience before you receive your new eternal body. There will come a moment when your existing body, your tent, will completely shut down. There will come a moment when your existing body will cease to function. That moment is what we refer to as the moment of death. So what is death? What happens to us at that moment? In his book, Where is God When It Hurts, Philip Yancey describes a unique funeral custom conducted by some African Muslims. 
Close family and friends circle the casket, and they quietly gaze at the corpse in the casket. No singing, no, no flowers, no tears, but then a peppermint candy is handed out to everyone around that casket. And at a signal, each person uh, puts the candy in their mouth, and they just kind of suck on that peppermint candy for a few moments in silence. And when the candy is gone, each participant is to be reminded that life for that person in the casket is over. They believe and are teaching at that moment that life simply dissolves. Is that true? Does life simply dissolve at death like a mint in your mouth? That is not, not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that your life simply dissolves at death. According to the biblical worldview, death is the experience of the soul being separated from the body. According to the biblical worldview, death is the experience of your soul being separated from your body. Yes, your body ceases to function, but remember, you are more than your body. You are a soul that has a body. And so when your body shuts down, your soul lives on. Okay, Darren, but what happens to me at the moment of death? What happens to me, to my soul, when my body shuts down? Where does my soul go? According to the Bible, there are two options. There are two possible destinations for your disembodied soul. The first option is this. You can enjoy God's presence while you're awaiting your eternal reward. That's the first option. You can enjoy God's presence while you're awaiting your eternal reward. Listen again to how the Apostle Paul compared the present versus the future state of a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, you know, as Christ followers, we're always confident and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, as long as I'm living in this tent, he says, we're actually away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. No, let's just hit a pause button there for a second. Well, hold on, what's he saying here? I thought as followers of Jesus, we had relationship with God by his spirit. But he's saying we're away from God. What's he saying? Now, understand, he, he's contrasting dimensions here. He says, listen, we know as Christ followers that as long as we are living with our soul in our present earthly body, that we are living a life of faith, meaning I don't have direct face-to-face, eye-to-eye access, if you will, to the presence of God. I have a spirit-to-spirit access, but it's not full yet. It's not the full experience that we will have coming someday. There's an element of faith, of trust, that we have in our relationship with God right now. It's, It's by faith, not by sight. I'm not directly accessing the presence of God. That's our experience in this body right now. He says, we are confident, I say, let's keep reading, and I would prefer actually to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There is an element, he says, moving forward where I will be out of this body and in direct access to the direct presence of God. Now, in another passage, Paul's wondering out loud which would actually be his preference. Would he prefer to remain in his earthly body, only experiencing the presence of God by faith, or... Would he prefer that his soul be lifted from his body, 
no longer merely experiencing the presence of God by faith, but directly and immediately experiencing the presence of God. Which would he prefer? And as Paul thought about it, he saw it as a win-win proposition. He says in Philippians chapter 1, you know, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? He's saying, for me to live in this earthly tent, in this earthly body, is Christ. Meaning, it's a faith-fueled, a faith-filled relationship with the Spirit of God. And that's a good thing. And to die is an even better thing. To die is gain. To die, meaning to become a disembodied spirit, is gain. It means I'm, it's a step in the right direction towards an even more intimate relationship with God. He says, listen, if I am to go on living in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. I still got things to do on the earth, he was saying at that time. Yet, what will I choose? Hmm, I don't know. He says, I'm torn between my two options. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far in the long run. But it's more necessary for you, he said to the Philippian people, that I remain in the body. So right now, I'd prefer to be absent from my body and present with the Lord. But for your sake, Philippians, I think it's better that I remain in my body right now. That's what he was saying. So where do we go at our moment of death? Where do we go when our souls are separated from our bodies? In these passages, the Apostle Paul is touching on the first option. The first option is your soul departs from your body and enjoys the direct presence of God while awaiting your eternal reward. You say, whoa, 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 hold on there and time out. What's this eternal reward you're talking about? Well, remember a moment ago, we mentioned that our ultimate destiny is to experience life forever in a new eternal body. Now, there has long been tossed around out there this concept that our souls are somehow trapped in our bodies. This is kind of an Eastern thinking, Eastern mysticism. That death is a liberating experience where our souls finally get to wander free from the shackles of our body forever. That is not a biblical concept. To be fully human is not to be a disembodied spirit forever. No, that's not the biblical concept. To be fully human is to have a body. To be fully human is to be a soul in a body. Yes, death is coming. Yes, there will be a moment when your soul will be separated from your existing body. But that is not the end. That is not God's ultimate destiny for you. God's ultimate destiny for you is that you be given a new supernatural body that you will exist in forever. A body like Jesus had after he died and rose from the dead. Do you remember a few moments ago, we saw how the Apostle Paul likened our present earthly bodies to a tent? Remember that? And do you remember what else Paul said in that verse? He said that our future bodies would be radically different. Go back to what he said in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, so we know that if our existing earthly bodies die, look what he says next. We have a building, not a tent. Not some tent that you tear down and build up again, some flimsy, transient tent. No, you have a building. And it's not an earthly building. You have a building from God. But even more than that, you have a building from God, he says, an eternal house, not an earthly tent. You've got a building from God, bricks, mortar, 
something that's, that's solid. In fact, it's, 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 it's an eternal house in heaven, not an earthly tent. It's an eternal house in heaven, and it's not built by human hands. He's trying to communicate, listen, the body you have now, it's temporary. It gets old. You lose your hair. But there's coming a day when you're going to have this a, a, a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Folks, it's God's design for your destiny that you experience eternity with him and with others in a new eternal body, in a new eternal world. A new you with new others in a new heaven and a new earth. That's God's destiny for you. A new supernatural body in a new supernatural world. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' inner circle, was given a vision of this new existence. Listen to what he describes as recorded in the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Listen to what he says, Revelation 21. He says, he's given a vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that's the one you and I dwell in right now, had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Sea, in the book of Revelation, an apocalyptic book, sea symbolizes chaos of humanity. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It was prepared like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. See, it's no longer by faith, it's by sight, it's by direct access now. And he, God himself, will be with them and be their God, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things, the way things are now, the old order of things has passed away he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So where do we go at the moment of death? Where do we go when our souls are separated from our bodies? According to the Bible, there are two possible destinations. The first option, as we've seen, is you can enjoy God's presence while awaiting your eternal reward, which includes an eternal supernatural body. Sounds great. So what's the second option? Well, you can enjoy God's presence while awaiting your eternal reward, or you can be separated from God's presence while awaiting your final judgment. Wait, wait, what? What did you say, Darren? I said, you can enjoy God's presence while awaiting your eternal reward, or you can be separated from God's presence while awaiting your final judgment. Clearly, the second option isn't as pleasant or optimal. The second option is what the Bible refers to as the place called, wait for it, hell. Hell. Now, I've discovered over the years that people get uncomfortable when you talk about hell, like the people in the front row here. They think you're trying to threaten them or intimidate them or scare them into something. Some people even say, Darren, you shouldn't talk about hell. You should be more loving like Jesus. Oh, really? Well, did you know that most of what we know about hell, we learn from Jesus? 
Did you know that Jesus spoke about hell three times more than he spoke about heaven? It's true. Hell is one of our two options. So don't you think it's important that we know what our options are? Jesus thought so, and I tend to agree with Jesus. So I'm going to take our remaining couple of minutes to tell you what the Bible says about hell. Now, hell is portrayed in Scripture as a temporary holding place for disembodied souls. Disembodied souls that are awaiting their final judgment. Hell is not the final judgment. Hell is a holding place for souls that are awaiting the final judgment. Jesus himself gave us a glimpse into this second option in a story he told, a story contrasting two experiences of life after death, a poor beggar and a rich man. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this. He says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. What's that? Hold on a second. And the rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away. Now, this is a poetic telling here. Abraham's side was the poetic name that the Jews gave for the experience of being comforted by God's presence. The alternative to being comforted by God's presence was to be separated from God's presence in a place Jesus called hell. Sometimes it's translated Hades, which is the Greek word. Now, there are all kinds of false concepts of hell out there. Suffice it to say that hell is not a torture chamber, nor is it a subterranean party shack or some disembodied rave. Hell is a temporary holding place for rebellious souls who are awaiting their final judgment. In the very last book of the Bible, again, the book of Revelation, The Apostle John describes a vision he was given of what will take place at the final judgment. Listen carefully to what John saw as recorded by him in Revelation chapter 20. He said, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So our decisions have eternal impact, apparently. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, see, there's the Greek word for hell, Death and Hades, or hell, gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades, hell, were thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. After the guilty die... Their souls go to a holding place, a place commonly known as hell or Hades. They're held in that place until the day of their final judgment, the day when God will finally bring justice to the universe, 
People are always saying, where is God? Why does he allow this to happen? Why does he allow that to happen? There will be a day when God will finally and ultimately and once and for all bring justice to the universe. The day when truth will finally prevail, where justice will roll like thunder. Hell is not the final judgment of the rebellious souls. It's the holding place for rebellious souls that are awaiting this final judgment. And as we just saw, the Bible describes the final destination of the guilty as a place called the lake of fire. And the Bible teaches that the lake of fire is the second death. What's this all about? What's the lake of fire? What's the second death? Well, fire has always been used in the Bible as a symbol of either purification, destruction, or judgment. The first death... And death, by the way, is symbolic for separation. And so the first death in the Bible refers to the experience of physical death. First death is the death you and I are familiar with. It's the experience of the soul being temporarily separated from the body. The second death refers to the experience of eternal death. Not physical death, that's first death. The second death is eternal death. That's the experience of the soul being eternally separated from God. Now exactly how the second death happens is a mystery. It's not fully known to us. We can only speculate. But the speculation over the centuries has come down to two main options. And you can hold to either of these options and be a biblical Christ follower. Some biblical scholars believe that the lake of fire describes an actual place. For those who hold to this belief, the term second death describes a place where rebellious people exist. They live forever. These people are getting what they wanted in life. These are the people who rejected God's offer of a relationship with them. So they're experiencing what they claim they wanted, eternity separated from God. And the Bible describes such an experience as torment. Other biblical scholars believe that the lake of fire is not an actual place where people exist forever, but it's a term to describe a one-time act. These scholars believe that the term lake of fire describes the final destruction, the final annihilation of the rebellious, of the guilty. To these scholars, the second death is exactly what it sounds like. It's the moment where the very existence of the rebellious is ended. The rebellious souls cease to exist as living, conscious beings. Now, whether the lake of fire is an ongoing eternal state or a one-time final event is ultimately unknown to us. What is known is that the rebellious dead are being held in a holding center called hell. And in hell, they're awaiting their final judgment, which is known as the lake of fire or the second death. Okay, so what is our destiny in life? What does the future ultimately hold for us? Where do we go after we die? Well, we've seen we've got two options. We've seen that you can enjoy God's presence while awaiting your eternal reward, or you can be separated from God's presence while awaiting your final judgment. Now, it sounds like the people who get stuck in that second group get a raw deal, kind of like being born in Winnipeg, you know? (laughs) So how did the people in that second option get stuck in that place? Who decides on our final destination? 
You do. You are the one who decides your ultimate destination. Your ultimate eternal destination is your choice. The Bible puts it this way in Romans chapter 6. We all have a job, and if you have a job, you get a wage. The Bible says, well, the wages that sin pays is death. That is, that second death, the eternal separation from God. The wages that sin pays, our rebellion pays us, is eternal separation from God. But the gift, not the wages, the gift of God is eternal life, not eternal separation, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, eternal separation from God is what we deserve. It's what we've earned by our rebellion. Like a wage, it's what we have coming to us rightfully. Eternal life, however, as we've seen, is very different. Eternal life isn't a wage, it's a gift. It's what God offers to freely give us out of his loving kindness towards us. And like every gift that is offered, you have the choice to receive it or not. That's what we mean when we say, you are the one who decides your ultimate destination. Your ultimate eternal destination is your choice. And you were designed, you deserve to experience God's presence forever. You deserve and designed to experience his unconditional love. That's why he made you. That's what he wants for you. Well, what is this gift and how does the person receive it? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus speaking about himself here. He said, for God, meaning God the Father, so loved the world, he so loved everyone, the population, that he gave, speaking of himself, he gave his one and only son. He would say, that would be me. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in me, Jesus was saying, whoever puts their trust in my actions will not perish. You will not experience eternal separation, but you'll have eternal life. And then, Later, the apostle Peter said this, speaking of God, he says, you need to know, he's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to be eternally separated from God. He doesn't want anyone to experience that second death in the lake of fire. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants everyone to acknowledge their rebellion and accept the free gift that Jesus offers. The gift Jesus offers is this. God, now get this. God is willing to pay your moral debt. God is willing to cover and absorb the wages of sin that you have coming to you. He says, I'll cover it for you. I'll take care of it. You receive this gift by acknowledging your sin, by turning away from it, that's called repentance, and believing in him, trusting in what Jesus did on your behalf. Here's a key. Get this. In fact, write this down somewhere on your margin of your outline if you can. God does not send people to hell. People choose to go there. That's crucial to understand. How could God, a loving God, send people to hell? He doesn't. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there by choosing to separate themselves from God by rejecting his offer of forgiveness. He says, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. And that means eternity with me. And some humans say, sorry, not interested. Leave me alone. And God honors your decision. Well, let's conclude. Today we've done our best to address another one of life's big questions. The question of destiny. 
Today we've sought to answer the question, where do we go after we die? We learned a foundational truth right off the top. It stands as our big idea for today. At your core, you are a spiritual being. You are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that has a body. And we learned that there will come a moment when your body will cease to function. That moment is called death. At that moment, your soul will be separated from your body. At that moment, your soul will continue to live on. Where you will live on is determined by you and by you alone. You will either enjoy God's presence or you will await God's judgment. Your destination in the future is determined by your response, your decision in the present. Your destination in the future is determined by your decision in the present. Your response to the free gift of forgiveness, cleansing and ongoing grace that God's Son is offering you right now, that's the key. The gift is God's. The decision is yours. And you're about to make that decision right now.